Before we begin this episode, we want to advise you that we discuss issues of domestic abuse and coercive control. We are the unfair sex for women, for glasses of wine and a whole world of problems to navigate. Yes, there's going to be some rage, but there's also going to be a hell of a lot of laughing, learning, catharsis and camaraderie along the way. So grab a glass of wine and join us. Welcome to today's episode. We are continuing with our guest host series and this week we're extremely lucky to have Stephen Roberts with us. He is a professor at the School of Education, Culture and Society at Monash University. He is a sociologist who specialises in youth studies and also critical studies of men and masculinities. Thank you very much Steve for joining us. And uh, just so everyone knows, you're in Australia, so we're recording very early while you're recording at the end of the day. So I don't know how everyone's feeling and uh, how this might go. I think we all need coffee, right? I'm delighted to be here, but we all need coffee. So (laughs) It's very, very true. Um, So Steve, as you know, we do our Sorry, What Did You Say? And I know that you have got a couple of examples for us, so if you can offer up your sorry what did you say and we'll have a have a chat about it yeah i apologize in advance if these are too um emotional and or extreme um so yeah the first one's pretty bad so when i was a kid i had um a really terrible experience with more than one stepdad actually and they were both violent and um incredibly misogynistic and terrible to my mother um on one of these aspects of misogyny i want to reflect on quickly so um one time after this guy had beaten up my mum, she managed to grab two of my siblings um, and take them out of the house. And But she left me and my brother with the guy and, and nothing happened. She was gone for 48 hours and she, she came back to try and uh, take us away, I guess, um, with, with the rest of the family. And in the interim, my stepdad had somehow, somehow managed to indoctrinate me. And I don't remember it at all. I just remember what I said. So um, my mum asked me, she was at the front door and she asked me to come with her and the other siblings. Um, and I was the eldest child. So I was only about seven or eight maximum. I think it's probably seven. And um, yeah, so my mom says, you know, come with me. And my stepdad says, no, he's not going to come with you. Tell him, tell your mother why, Stephen. And the seven-year-old self said, because mommy's a slack. Like, it's absolutely heartbreaking still for me to even think about it and say it out loud. But, um, and so it's a, yeah. You know, a seven-year-old is never going to say, sorry, why did you teach me to say that? But it, over the course of my life, I thought about it a lot. And I thought, but a number of times I saw him since, which was enough for me to say, come on, like, sorry, what the fuck did you say? What do you, What is that all about? But it was like, it's kind of, yeah, yeah. Entrenched, entrenched misogyny um, in the culture, but also, yeah, beha- the behavior of that man and many others like him to not just say sexist things to women, but via their children as well it's particularly disgusting yeah that's my that's my big one it's a historical one but that is utterly heartbreaking um and actually i read one of your papers just this morning before we i, I reread it just before we got onto this call um and that's the story you tell i think and it's it's like truly horrific um and yeah it's just how can you how can you teach a child to to think that way and like the impact that that has down the line and it's it's amazing really that you've ended up doing what you do you like there's there's a couple of ways you could have gone right you could have gone down the route you've gone and I think we'll talk about that in a bit like what your studies are and what you teach and things but or you could have ended up like one of your stepfathers like that's it's horrendous yeah yeah when did you realize what it was that you had said 
ah, oh, like realize the impact, not for many years, you know, but um, in the moment, like I have a memory of saying it. So I know it was a thing that I kind of whispered mm. um, or, or more than whispered, just said it out loud because he kind of told me to say it when she inevitably asks. Um, but then like the, the cumulatively over the years, I kind of increasingly realized it was terrible and in a really weird way. Like it's perhaps the reflections on the significance of that type of behavior that allowed me not to become that behavior as well, because it just felt completely odd. Like I even remember it feeling strange, like feeling odd that I would have to say it, but I knew that I had to say it, you know, um, but not really realizing the impact at the time. Yeah. I think what's really sad is that um, a grown man feels that he has to find uh, like confirmation bias in a kid, Mm. like for him to be able to continue projecting his behaviors and his misogyny that he has to almost um, engage with the people around him to make sure they're also on the same page as him. Otherwise it kind of shows up his behavior. Right. So the fact that he felt the need to reach out to a seven year old to be like, yeah, absolutely. Let's, you know, give you my teachings. Let's see if you can also pass on the behavior that, Let's let's gang up yeah, on your mother, I but it, it's it a, just feels a bit. It's a key feature of um of yeah. misogyny, right? That's the that's the way it works as well. Um, you, you well using people's women's children against them is um is something that happens. We know uh, in the research literature is not, yeah not an uncommon thing at all. But also yeah, just teaching little boys to be like with this whole this whole feature of like sorry, what did you say? A lot of the examples you get, I'm sure, are because boys and men have learned how to be boys and men from their dads and from other people in their life who have used the same types of language so the the what did you say and why did you say it the why did you say it is kind of like a really interesting question and how do we stop people saying it so i completely agree with you steve a lot of the sorry what did you say moments that we get sent it feels like learned behavior and the reason it feels like learned behavior is because quite often or more often than not there doesn't seem to be any reason or rhyme behind why it was said it doesn't seem to have any thought behind them they're throwaway comments or it's sexist jokes or it's misogynist behavior that men can't often explain why they've done it or if you stop them they get very defensive because um you know they've seen someone else do it so why am i possibly being called up for the behavior that i've seen other people display and not be called up for and i think a lot of the reasons it becomes this uh, mirrored behavior is because we don't see a lot of accountability around it it's almost the exact opposite happens you know if someone delivers a sexist joke at a party well suddenly they're getting brought a pint of beer or they're getting a pat on the back and they got a ruckus of laughter so when you're landing jokes about the nagging wife or you know you're saying that the ex-wife is a pain in the arse or she's such a bitch they often come with some sort of social bump right you're seeing a reward for belittling women you're seeing a reward for making the woman the butt of the joke and not only is that in your everyday social engagements but we're also seeing it in parliament we're seeing it as you know presidents of the usa who are showing quite public misogynist behavior but they're being rewarded for it in a professional capacity so when you're growing up in a household where misogyny is quite prominent your children are going to be picking up on those social cues whether you're deliberately sitting down and drumming that into their head or in your case you know literally being told to repeat language you will start to pick up social cues in the household you'll see how your mother's being treated you'll see what your father is getting away with and you'll see his 
behavior being rewarded either at work or again validated at parties or by his mates and I think what's really sad is obviously if you're in an environment where you're learning this day in day out as a child well you're going to grow up one day and then if you've never been or seen this behavior being held accountable um, being held accountable why on earth would you buck the trend why would you get to 18 19 20 or you're entering the workforce as your first job and think absolutely what we're going to do is swim against the tide I'm going to hear a sexist joke and call it out of course you're not because actually what we've taught is that um, being popular and making sure that we get along in life is the most important thing. And society for too long has rewarded misogynist behavior. So why on earth is there an incentive to stop a misogynist behavior, certainly for the men in our world? And actually a lot of women, like there are women who get promoted into positions of power because they follow this behavior, because they don't mind putting themselves at the butt of the joke or they don't mind throwing other women under the bus. I mean, maybe they do mind, but they do it because they've seen it work. They, they've seen, if you become embedded within this lad culture, within this um, masculine culture, you see that it works, that you're, you're professionally, you get on. So for there are men and women who see the success and the benefit of being misogynist and they choose to hold on to that because mm. why wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah and I, I was um, about to reflect on uh, some things I've seen recently on like Facebook and Instagram and it often comes from like the southern states of America where I've seen... Um, people posting stuff like a man needs to be a man I want them to be big and strong and protect me and like enough you know talking about like men being too feminine men being uh like not being manly enough um and and coming from both men and women um and it's a really strange thing like what does that even mean and and I think it's similar to your sorry what did you say and and teaching boys young what that means what being masculine means and what being a, a man in inverted commas means um and 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 the impact that that then has down the line um I think it's really it's quite distressing definitely yeah and I think you're right to point out that it's um kind of endorsed by women as well like some women of course um but yeah there's in social theory at least there's this whole like idea of this relationship between hegemonic or dominant masculinity and um emphasized femininity and this so that, that's exactly what you're describing really that one is complicit with the other even though it's subordinate so women who will almost definitely find themselves in subordinate relationships if they're kind of peddling that trope of emphasized femininity and then um longing for the return to the kind of the, the manly man like that kind of language and yet at the same time they're perpetuating um gender inequality by by buying into it it's sad but it's very real have you since discussed it with your mum have you have you had that conversation with her and and yeah. i mean like yeah. she, obviously she knows what you do and yeah. so like i imagine a lot of what happened to you as a child had an impact on what you've ended up studying and and, and teaching yeah. um have you said to her since then Ah, oh, many times. Like, yeah. sorry, what did I say? Sorry, what did he do? Like, all of that stuff. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's that one moment was probably the only time that I can remember where I'd been uh, weaponized in terms of using my voice against my mum. I had been weaponized in other ways. Um, but yeah, so she's was always for, very forgiving, but mostly because I think she felt that she required my forgiveness. And like, as a, this is a horrible thing that seems to happen to women in domestic violence situations where they um they blame themselves right so they blame themselves for not doing better by their children and especially I was um brought up in a working class area and my mum was uh, uh wasn't working basically so she was a full-time mum of four children and had no material resources to facilitate an escape anyway and there are um 
yeah, I've written about this before. There's one or two times where we had to escape in the middle of the night to basically save our lives, essentially. Um, so she she kind of more reflects on this broader body of evidence of really terrible challenges that she that the children had to go through, and that she somehow feels guilty for that. So that we do we we have talked about this one incident, and I feel terrible about it. But the broader kind of conversation is that she feels terrible about um, the situation that her children were in. I really hate that. I hate that she has any sense of self blame. So I find it interesting that I had almost the opposite experience. So my parents divorced when I was 17, going on 18, and it was triggered by an affair that my dad had had. Um, and during that period of time, my mum got very bitter towards my dad. Um, she felt that he was afforded freedoms because he was the one who moved out. And she felt that she was the one who'd been left at home to kind of pick up all the pieces. Um, she was very vocal about the fact that she wanted to, um, to not be a mum anymore, that she felt that she'd been burdened with the fact that the kids were at home with her. Um, so that was quite hard to hear but also at the moment or during that time um my mum said a couple of things to me and one of those was ellie this used to be a family of six it's now a family of five and one and you're the one um which is incredibly heartbreaking and then the second thing she she could refer to me as a vindictive bitch and the reason that phrase stands out for me is because a few months earlier it was the exact phrase that she'd used to describe the woman that my dad had been having an affair with now, whether my mum was aware of that at the time or not, I, I can't say for sure. Um, it was incredibly helpful for me to hear, and it was something that has obviously stuck with me for the last what, 12 years now. Yeah. Um, but on reflection, I find it really interesting that, um, so the woman who, in my mum's eyes, had obviously been the homewrecker, taking her husband away, was on par with her daughter, who during the time was trying to keep a relationship with her father. And I think it says a lot about society that, the way we look at women and the way that we use the term bitch is often associated to women who aren't who are seen to be doing stuff that society has told us that we shouldn't be doing so again being the the person having the affair or sleeping around mm. or um causing trouble at home not being the submissive quiet woman that we've been told that we should yeah. be and i just find it really interesting looking back that in all of that it was my dad who'd had the affair, but it was the two women who were the bitches. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that. I was about to say, yeah, I, I think it's a really important moment to, to reflect on how men get away with that so often. Um, <laughs> you know, affairs are usually there's two people having a consensual relationship, even though it's illicit. And But more often than not, all of our internalized misogyny turns, it makes us raise an eyebrow at the actions of the, of the woman. So I guess I'm wondering... Like, there isn't an answer to this, sorry, what did you say? There's no, like, I don't think you could go back as a child and, like, to go back to then and go, actually, I'm going to address this. Because, obviously, like, having read read that article about that situation, you were a kid and you would have had the shit kicked out of you if you'd, if you'd actually said anything back to him or said, no, I'm not saying that. Like, how, how do we even move on from that? I don't think it's a sorry, what did you say to Steve? I think it's sorry, what did you make me say? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I'm yeah. a grown adult. Yeah. 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 What did you make me say? Um, so we need to get him on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, raises, again, an important thing about yeah, what, what men teach their kids and what they say and whether or not we can ever um, change people or, or whether it's more about changing boys and men of the future rather than, I don't know how easy it is for yeah, for that person to, to change his perspective. And I've thought many times, even as I've written about it as well and you know published about it and had lots, hundreds and hundreds of people read this stuff and probably even know who he is, but you know, would he just reject it? Um, is there any point confronting him? But that was the like, 
yeah, should I should I have said something to him as an adult? Should I be like, hey, sexist, disgusting human being, yeah. those things that you did, should I call him out? But to, it's a challenge. I think another angle of this, I was reading some, um, I think I actually listened to Women's Hour yesterday and they were talking about uh, like women being gold diggers and the reason that we marry um, older men is because we want their money um, and all that good fun stuff. Um, and they were, one of the interesting things came out, I said, well, why would we want to marry someone 30 years younger, have their children, have them die on us? And then all of a sudden we're damaged goods, right? And people, society doesn't like the idea of a single mum. Somehow they failed in some way or when you end up in a new relationship, you're bringing baggage with you. There's a lot of negative connotations around this idea of, of somebody having someone else's children. I just wondered, obviously, it was a step father to you in these moments. Do you reckon that was amplified and the, the kind of his behavior towards your mother was a reflection on her obviously bringing her own children into a new relationship? That's a really good question. Um, but it's, it's complicated. Probably not because um, he was my stepdad, but he was the biological dad of two of my siblings. Um, but I think it's a really important point yeah. that there is, yeah, some, again, built into these ideas of masculinity is the idea of, um, one's own seed, you know, this kind of nonsense and the importance of, uh, uh, reproducing your own children, your own bloodline and all that kind of stuff. So I think it probably does factor in at times and that the, the treatment of some stepchildren, the, the, the ill treatment of some stepchildren is exacerbated by that. Um, those kinds of understandings that you have to protect and look after and reproduce your own rather than um, other children per se. So it's not an act of kindness, but an act of tolerance sometimes, and then sometimes a lot worse. So really, it's a really, it's a really good uh, question because I do actually have an example of just that. So I know somebody who, who had a stepdad who they were uh, beaten up pretty badly by their stepdad. Their st- stepdad had children uh his his own children and never touched them and it was absolutely it seems to be exactly that as that uh yeah the 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 stepchild was proof that their mother had been with someone someone prior to the to him and it wasn't yeah something he wanted but steve in your situation i think all all of you were uh targeted weren't you including his own children yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, no person was left unscathed. It was very much um, demonstration of power and enactment of power, I guess, against and against those people who were uh, smaller and weaker than him, whoever they were. Oh, it's just all horrendous. Um, and I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. And I'm glad that you came out the other side of it, the person you are, and not like, and didn't go down another route. And I hope that your siblings are, are the same and that they have been able to kind of recover from such a horribly traumatic thing. And your mum as well. Um, because, yeah, it's just, I, I just can't even imagine being in that situation. And uh, yeah, it's it's a horrible, horrible thing I'm to think about. sorry for raising this grim subject at 7.30 in the morning for you oh, to it's, no. it's like this to wake up to. It's, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a reality of people's lives still, right? We've been working for decades to try and resolve these issues and or try and understand them and then resolve them. Um, but yeah. we know you know, in much worse situations than uh, happen, than have happened to me. Like, I think one in Australia, one woman, one woman a week dies from... Um, domestic violence so you know it's still it's still a pretty shocking and gross situation 
what I find really hard to swallow with hearing stats like that is not the stats themselves, but it's the fact that people can't see an issue. People hear one a week and it just doesn't seem to trigger the anger that it absolutely should. The World Health Organization released um, some stats a while ago that said that one in three women worldwide have been subjected to either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence. That's 30% of women worldwide. 30%. And I think it's really interesting, like the word epidemic has been used to describe male violence against women and actually Tran Lee who is a technologies and gender expert from the communications and media faculty at Melbourne's Monash University um, she says that we've seen time and time again that male violence against women is framed semantically as a perpetual risk just lingering in the external environment a virus a woman might catch at any time but she says this kind of virus language renders the perpetrators absolutely invisible whereas male privilege enables these types of violence and they're not opportunist crimes they are forms of structural domination which serve to exclude women in other minorities groups. So whilst we're sat here and we have been criticised and women are criticised for paying attention to or drawing attention to everyday sexism because everyone's like there are just bigger problems to solve. Well, actually, what we find is that this is where it starts. And if we don't refer to the everyday sexism, we don't look at the misogynist behaviour in societies, we don't look how it, it systematically benefits one group of people and absolutely marginalise others, and not only marginalise, but cause violence towards a group of people because this kind of language is accepted, it's it's encouraged. And actually, one word, the word slut or slag or whore, can escalate into violent behaviour, which can escalate into the deaths of women. So this absolutely needs to be taken as a much more serious issue. Definitely, yeah. They can't be, they can't be disconnected from the historical purpose. All of the bad words, the, the C word, which I would probably ordinarily say, but not <laughs> not on a podcast. Um, but yeah, it's slut and slag and all of those kind of misogynistic terms. They had a purpose, <laughs> and that purpose was to ridicule uh, ridicule women uh, and but do uh, basically symbolic violence against women, put them in their place, make them feel unworthy. So to then pretend that it doesn't still have those connotations, because we now, you know, sometimes we might say, ah. Oh, my boy mate who is a fuck boy he's such a slut or whatever and if we use that in a casual way and somehow that people like to think that equalizes the, the sentiment but it doesn't of course it still has those connotations that are incredibly negative and pejorative for women and i think we have to listen to women when they say these are the reasons why i don't want to be called a slut like it's not funny and it's not equal yeah i don't like that i don't want yeah. it yeah exactly <laughs> and i and i think it's something that um i've, I've definitely had a couple of conversations on social media and I have to say I don't get involved with these conversations often but you know what it what it's like sometimes you see them and you're just like oh, I'm, yeah I'm jumping in on this um and uh, where someone said like why are you so bothered about these small things why are we focusing on language and why are we focusing on things like oh you don't like you don't like a, a rape joke or you don't like a, a, a you know at the other end of the scale like a blonde joke or whatever why are we worried about these things when there's so many other bigger things that you know there's a woman and one woman a week being killed from domestic abuse it's like yes but these things are are, are where it starts like and and that's what ingrains mm. that this kind of kind of violence and view of women from men um and so it is really important and i think it's a really good this is a really good point to kind of segue on to like your studies and your teaching and various other stuff because i think like you've done uh you've you've looked at some of this stuff right and how they're meshed together and what the impact is and how it affects men and boys <laughs> yes all of those things um where do you want me to start i can i just would want to endorse exactly what you're saying though um, before we go anywhere else those expressions are 
yeah, absolutely part of a spectrum of behavior that's a manifestation of sexism. Like it's that they both, um, yeah, they're, they're not separate. They're, they're part of the same thing. So yes, um, uh, you might say that people that use misogynistic language aren't necessarily going to do a mass shooting because they're angry with women, but these things are still all related. They're, they're part of the same sentiment of disgust against women, like hatred. It's, it's completely obvious. Um, but, but not obvious enough, I guess, in some ways, but because people, as you say, people will say, ah, oh, let's think about how things are much worse for women who are being beaten up or raped or whatever, but this is just a joke. It's just words. But, um, yeah, in, in many ways, one facilitates the other. So as, as you asked, where do you start? I think where, where it would be great to start is um, like, what, what do you do? Tell, tell everyone what you do, what you study, why you do it. <laughs> yeah. I think we'll probably go from there. Okay. So I'll, I'll plug my employer because they, they kind of want, want to ensure that I do that. I work for Monash University in Melbourne and uh, it's uh, just been, it's been ranked as the second best university in Australia just this week. So they'll be pleased to get a plug in even uh, anywhere on a, a podcast, you know? Um, yeah. So I'm a sociologist of masculinity and also youth studies. And that means a whole range of things actually. So I look at social processes and how inequalities manifest. So particularly around gender and um, the way that uh, trying to understand how masculinity comes to be, what it means, what implications it has for people's um, everyday practices. Um, and then the kind of youth stuff is, is yeah, you know, just basically looking at people under 30 and trajectories through to adulthood in education and employment. And, and again, mostly inequalities. Um, and this is a very general way of saying, okay, I do social research basically on lots of what I think are interesting questions around, um, yeah, how we prevent inequality, how we try to promote better forms of masculinity, how we understand, um, whether even academic, um, kind of conceptualizations of masculinity are harmful or not and so on. So there's, uh, and I guess the other main thing is that at the front of everything I do, as well as questions of injustice and, and inequality is people's experiences. So I tend, I tend to, but not always use kind of um, analyses of face-to-face -face or one-to-one -one interviews. Uh, so some sociologists, of course, use big data sets and ask, you know, do big surveys, whatever. But I'm much more interested in people's experience of social phenomena. That must be an incredibly emotionally draining way of doing research because obviously you're hearing lived experiences and you're trying to understand those um with fate like with an actual face to put against that research versus actually sending out a survey and kind of having some results come back which may validate or invalidate your your hypothesis um how do you find that is it i know you just said you find that the most interesting but yeah. is that hard is it hard do that's you a really that? good question i i don't know why and it might be because of my, ex my the experiences that i had as a kid um i actually find it relatively easy to deal with and i think in part one of the logics that I kind of convinced myself of is that I'm more or I didn't go down the kind of violent route myself and I didn't or I, I didn't um I didn't get too kind of weighed down by my experience of violence because I engaged in a self-therapeutic process of always telling people so I didn't just kind of internalize and never talk about my experiences so then when I'm hearing people's experiences on the reverse end of that like I often feel it's just a good thing to do so it doesn't um carry the emotional weight that it does for others. Um, 
and that's in you know no way to brag at all i just i kind of feel lucky that i can do that without carrying that emotional burden because i do hear from lots of colleagues who you know they have to have particular um processes in place to protect people from other people's narratives basically the weight of other people's narratives so i think i've got a bit lucky although what's peculiar is that the last study we've done very recently which was a 5000 person survey um but it included uh kind of qualitative handwritten comments as well about the experience of domestic violence as a child so that was so close to my experience that reading the stuff was more difficult than hearing it which is particularly peculiar so i guess yeah again these these things manifest in different ways when i'm talking to someone it feels i feel relaxed and i don't feel like i carry the burden away from an interview but sometimes reading it on paper is is harder and i felt that same experience when i when i wrote the the article that um that Rhiannon's talking about about my experience I'd, I'd said these things out loud so many times but when i wrote it down and pressed send on twitter that day i was really nervous i felt like really emotional in a way that i am not usually when i speak about or even hear about other people's experiences of violence have you ever been shut down when trying to share an experience not really i don't I, not actively i think there are some spaces that are more accommodating than others i think um boys and men are less good at hearing this stuff because it's confronting in a way where you know it, it brings masculinity to the surface so i think that um women and gender diverse people are more likely to be sympathetic and understanding of the necessity and value of talking about these things and i like shocked but kind of less shocked than than guys are and, they, and guys might not want to hear it as much so i feel like this space doesn't open up in the same way but um i wouldn't say i've necessarily been shut down and when did you start feeling like you could talk about it was that later on in your childhood or was it you'd become an adult and yeah how when when did you start feeling like you could talk yeah. about I, again, like I feel like I always did. I'm not, I can't quite trace why I did it, but from being quite young, like being a young teenager, I started to tell people, people about it. Um, and I guess it kind of became bound up in my identity, like <laughs> who I was and this kind of resilient person or whatever. Um, yeah. So it's been happening for a long time. I don't think it was a, a strategic or kind of, um conscious decision you know uh, i think it just kind of happened and i'm i'm glad that the trajectory unfolded that way because i think being able to tell people is actually helpful as well like it's helpful for me but i think it's helpful for, for people to hear this is the kind of shit that happens in real people's lives as well that they know and i think you know it's, it has similar parallels to to women's stories of of rape and sexual assault so um in sharing this story like i i heard a story of, of rape and sexual assault from a friend and she hadn't told me for several years, but then I did hear it because we happened to be talking about some terrible stuff one time. So that through that process of sharing, I think we, um, yeah, come together and like create empathy and um, solidarity, I suppose, as well. And so I think I'm wondering, like, look, there's a lot of universities that teach like female studies and feminist studies and various other stuff. Does this kind of slot into that in a um, like, it, yeah, do they kind of does it fit together? The, the branch like men's studies is a what you might call a broad church right it has lots of different kind of um emphases but the the reason that i talk about myself as being part of the, the part of the uh, feminist studies it's called critical studies of men and masculinities is because it's 
gender studies. Like it's recognizing that men and masculinity or men are gendered beings as well. And that, you know, gender isn't a synonym for women, which often is used in, in public discourse and just people chatting in the street. If you mention the word gender, they think you're talking about women. But actually what critical studies of men and masculinities has done for 40 years is say, men are gendered. Like being a man is gendered and it has, comes with implications and um, yeah, implications and ideas and understandings that, that create possibilities and, and create practices that are problematic or otherwise like expectations. So the idea that um, gender is just for women is, is odd actually. <laughs> and then well, for, for people in my kind of business it is. And then it, so instead, yeah, we think of ourselves as being part of um, this broader um, coalition of kind of feminist informed politics and feminist informed research, because it's supposed to be about understanding how we can try and move towards gender equality. So even though it's about like men become the focus and that the focus is both what the most famous theorist in my field is called Raywin Connell. And she um, talks about the politics within masculinity. So it's about the relations between men, but then always it's all, you know, it's always as well about how that informs the relationships between the relations, sorry, between men and women. That's super interesting. Politics between men. Does that kind of cover, you know, that little sort of lads, lads, lads culture. And like, I've got, I've got like, some friends who kind of regress when they're with around their friends that they were friends with when they were teenagers or early university and you know they turn into those kind of like boob commenting uh <laughs> like beer chugging awful people that they've grown out of because you know they've now got wives and daughters and stuff and they're like oh you know, I don't have to be a dick anymore but they kind of regress is that is, is that what you mean by men like men's politics like politics it's, it's, among men it's part of it so part of, like in other kind of overarching and most important level for my area of study it's about I guess um the the different um levels of distance from the norm from the dominant hegemonic norm so if we think of like white able-bodied rich people rich men sorry kind of embodying the most um desirable and culturally esteemed version of masculinity and then there are a series of what other um, a series of other masculinities so it's a plural underneath them the politics of masculinity then is about what's the relationship between working class men or ethnic minoritized men queer men and that hegemonic norm and what does it mean for them in terms of this thing called the patriarchal dividend? Then, as an example, um, that, that queer men have historically been most obviously understood as being characterized by subordinated masculinity and situated quite a way down the gender order in terms of access to the rewards of masculinity. And that's in, in no small part because of their disproportionate threat of verbal and physical violence that they suffer um, as a result of deviating from the demands of I guess, heterosexual masculinity. Um, and then beyond that, the politics of men and masculinity then is, is, all, is all kind of bound up with the valorization of masculinity in a way that legitimates gender inequality and devalues femininity and devalues women and gender diverse people uh, overall. Also, definitely what you just described is super interesting because it is part of it. And what we... Uh, we talk about in this field something called complicit masculinities as well and i think that's what in part what you're describing so sometimes we think of masculinity types and people being like one type of person but actually what happens in practice is that yeah people slip and slide between these different modes of identity so the men that you're talking about might have grown up notionally at least grown up and they might not do that stuff anymore but then given the opportunity and in the right circumstance they'll practice their behavior in a way that fits with that that micro field so 
um, yeah, they can they can slide back into that. And through doing that, they are complicit in the reproduction of patriarchy, of course, because they might be like, oh, I don't usually do this, and this is only a joke, and I'm only doing it for the lads. <laughs> but they what would be really helpful is if they able to say, yeah, what would be really helpful is be like, actually, the bants is fucking sexist, and we can't yeah. do that. I absolutely loved you shared a tweet a couple of weeks ago and it was the crisis of masculinity myths are old and reoccurring indeed and that was in response to um Paul Ferry who wrote a brief history of men today are too feminine and women too masculine and uh, I read through that thread and it's, it's super interesting I think a lot of that is because it threatens patriarchal views right that women have a place and they need to be feminine and small and everything we believe that being feminine is and then men have to have this kind of masculinity about them because it makes them men and it means that they deserve the power and the strength um i was just wondering kind of what your thoughts were in why we hold on to this um these masculinity myths these gender myths absolutely what you just described is the is the main reason men hold on to it because it is the logic of power like it absolutely underscores being able to maintain and keep power um i think what's interesting about this is that no one in my field in feminist studies is ever saying that women can't be feminine and men can't be masculine right it's just about understanding that those two things are not intrinsically linked to the sexed body where like we're all different and we can all, all do what we want basically but allocating a particular set of identity or particular set of practices to a particular gender and maintaining that division helps consolidate power like there's just no, no question about it um and what's what's interesting i think is that the whole like crisis narrative that comes around that as well like our men it's, it's we, you know we missed the time when men were men and Women are becoming too masculine and men are becoming too feminine. What's really fascinating about that is that is almost as old as time, like the stuff that I've looked at going back at least 150 years has the same rhetoric over and over again. So every every time there's a, a crisis in, in the state, so, you know, depression, like economic crises basically usually produce this idea that uh, our men aren't manly enough anymore. And it's a kind of weird um, a weird interaction of understanding of like understanding the economic crisis come from men not being manly enough, but it, it happens a lot. Basically, the, the main point I'm trying to get at is that you will hear like, "Oh, it's a crisis of masculinity because men and boys are dressing in a particular way, or they're acting on TikTok in a particular way." But the crisis myth that is is the same. It just it keeps it keeps coming around um, every fifteen or twenty years. It's said again, and it's the same old shit. Like, why aren't why aren't men totally different to women that's what people want to know and they want to know it because that's the way you hold on to power and subordinate women yeah i mean ben shapiro who's you know my least favorite person in the world i think um he said he he posted something on twitter when i mean why does he even care when harry styles wore a dress on vogue on vogue magazine was it vogue yeah um and it's like why do you care why why are you commenting on this and it was that it, why why are men not being manly and it's just such yeah it's really really frustrating that 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 happens because you know you've you've got a son and like how you don't want those things he's tiny right so you don't want those kind of embedding into him because boys hear that boys hear oh you need to be you need to be masculine. Don't cry. Don't like do all these things. And it's like, yeah, big boys don't cry, you know. And it's it's just it's perpetuating this sort of horrible cycle. Well, yeah, that, and again, those things have been around for decades, right? So since the beginning of the field of study of critical studies and men of masculinities, that's one of the first things they pointed to was this notion of like you need to be um, boys kind of measure each other against these ideas, and one of them being you need to be the big wheel, you need to not be a 
quote unquote sissy, like you need to not cry and, and whatever. But the what the social theory kind of teaches us and should teach all of us actually, you don't need to be a sociologist sociologist to understand this, that those ideas that Ben Shapiro and others hold on to are not they're not real. They're just like they're ideas. So the idea that manliness has any kind of explicit um, underpinning, like uh, essentialist underpinning is, is not real. So the, the, the example that's often reeled out in my field when we're trying to teach the students about this is like how fashion changes over time, of course. So his idea now that it's really problematic that this one person is wearing a dress. Well, if you look back in history, like King Charles II is the most obvious one in, in British history where um, the time was... Uh, you know, the, the men of the court of the king's court would wear fancy clothes and heels and big collars and cuffs and wigs and all this kind of stuff. So flamboyance was associated with the dominant form of masculinity. So now it's like Ben Shapiro is freaking out because the, the the idea of wearing a dress is associated with women and therefore it's feminine. But it's not real. It doesn't actually like it's not manly or otherwise to wear a dress. It's just someone wearing a dress and we code it as masculine, which is the important point we code behavior as being masculine or feminine but they are not in, intrinsically masculine or feminine and of course feminine means means weak right and that's the, those kind of those things coming out of ben shapiro's mouth are synonyms like if you're feminine then you're weak and you know that means a man can't can't be that um and yeah that's a i think that's a a, a well i mean it's a standard rhetoric i think that comes from those types of people as um so obviously we're We've got the likes of Andrew Tate today and uh, this kind of growing noise on TikTok, social media um, of very strong voices trying to push the idea of what being a man is and what masculinity means today. And that the fact, again, we've fallen off the wagon. We need to pick ourselves back up again and we need to get ourselves back on track of being what a true man is. Why do you think that is um, perhaps louder today than it has been for a few years? Is there a reason why people feel the need that we need to relay this message that it's um, that people forgetting who they are and that they need reminding. It's difficult. I think I don't want to kind of, um, I guess, engage in moral panics about the internet, but I think the internet does provide that platform for those voices to become really amplified. Um, but they also become amplified at particular times. I think you're absolutely right. So generally speaking, what we see again, it's, this is uh, you don't have to be a history nerd, but you'll, you'll learn a lot by looking back in time, right? So you see that every time women make significant gains, there's a particular type of backlash from particular sections of uh, society, uh, well, usually conservative, but um, conservative men and, and the women that support them. But yeah, so I think it's a combination of we had, say, 20, was it 2016, the Harvey Weinstein stuff, and then um, the Me Too movement was particularly... Um, uh, it was a moment. And I think then alongside that, there was a shift, a corresponding shift that had been happening kind of underneath the surface, but really comes to the surface around that time in terms of brands promoting things like healthy masculinity or, you know, um, kicking back against toxic masculinity. So things like the Gillette ad about you know, like not beating up women or trying to like, yeah, um, brands having a kind of message that is be a better type of man. And so those things coincide. So I think that, yeah, there's a reaction to women's progress and a reaction to being told that we should, um, men should change their behavior. And I think it's the kind of, not the last hurrah, because I think we've got a long way to go to defeat them. And there's a lot of um, credibility for the likes of 
Jordan Peterson and um, Andrew Tate and so on, they, they clearly get a lot of people following them. But their viciousness points to the success that we're having elsewhere. So I think what's super important is that, yeah, those two people in particular, but Ben Shapiro as well, Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Andrew Tate, these are wealthy men, right? They're wealthy men. And what's really interesting about this is that the kind of uh, backlash against feminist gains is often situated as being driven by poor men. But it's the rich men who have all of this privilege, who possibly think that it might be eroding before their eyes, who drive the agenda, which is like absolutely fascinating to me. That's the, one of the things I write about a lot and try and get my own colleagues to, to think about a lot because even in um, academic work, academic sociology, there's still a tendency to be like, ah, oh, you know, working class lads, they're, they're the worst. Like, bless them. They're the, we know it's the, they've got this, these difficult conditions that they've grown up in, but they're the worst. But actually, no. The Jordan Peterson, the Andrew Tates, they're the worst, wealthy, influential people, um, yeah, who are driving this agenda and pretending that they are at risk of, they're not, risk, they're not risking losing anything right now. In fact, they're making loads of money by you know, getting the, the likes and the views on, on TikTok and so on. Um, I've lost my train of thought, but <laughs> I get passionate about that. Can you go into a little bit more detail about the research you're doing in working class men and kind of the, the things that you found um, by doing research yeah. in that area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I've done a lot of this over the last few years, but my um, 2018 book was a like a seven-year longitudinal study of. So first of all, um, just 25 men, talk, 24 men, sorry, talking about their histories and their experience of school and work and their aspirations for um, family and so on, and and housing and whatever. And then over the next seven years, following them online. And um, looking at their emotional expression and their um, their platonic homosocial intimacy and this kind of stuff, and the the main kind of finding in my work and something that I'm working on in, in a book now with my colleague Carla Elliott um, is to yeah really point to this question around whether or not working class men are only and always regressive in terms of their masculinity, and my kind of argument is actually that operates as a foil for the likes of well for academics as well but for, for middle class and, and rich men basically to say you know we're not we're not the problem and one of the challenges of this type of work is to tread the line between like explicitly not being part of the not all men crowd like oh here's a bunch of guys that are, that are that i've that i've studied and actually they're not so bad um, which is not my point my point is that where there is there, there is progress in these spaces as well and that's really important to leverage to understand and then leverage if we want to kind of develop more inclusive or healthy forms of masculinity as normal and normative. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like, kind of my vibe is to try and understand where good practice is happening and to better understand how um, stereotypes work against what we're trying to do. So if we keep, it's like let, there's this idea of labeling theory. If we keep telling working class boys they're the worst and they behave in this way, then why are we surprised when they behave that way? Um, and then at the same time, we really expose that kind of scapegoating um, logic that middle class men use to be able to distance themselves from problematic behavior because we all think it's the poor kids or the ethnic minority kids that um, are, the, are the real problems. That's super, super interesting. And I, I mean, I guess we, 
there's plenty of uh, news about it, it, it is the working class people who are the ones who are beating up their wives, who are doing all these things. And like you say, while maybe those rich, powerful men, I mean, who knows if they're beating up their wives, but because uh, they've probably, they're so wealthy that they're keeping yeah, those yeah, stories yeah. They, out they of can, the news. Yes, absolutely. They can, um, actually, the data is super interesting on this. Like historically, there's never been a firmly established link between social class background and um victimization uh, well uh, perpetration there's a there's a clear link between class and um victimization and survivorship of domestic violence and one of the reasons is because exactly what you're getting at people of means can either cover stuff up or they're more likely to um have another place to go so where we see these spikes in like working class women are the ones that are more likely to be um, perpetrated against is because they have to leave the home. They have to go to shelters. Like they've got nowhere else to go. They end up dying. Um, so yeah, there are a variety of ways that middle class and wealthy men can disguise their violence. And then I think we all get caught up through news media cycles and so on into thinking it's a particular type of person that's a problem. And then, and then again, you know, it's, it's not even necessarily about left or right because we know that the Hollywood set is predominantly kind of left-wing-ish Democrat in the US, but there's still plenty of, harsh as it is to say, grim as it is to say, there were plenty of rapists and sexual assault merchants kicking around men who were doing these these behaviours to women in in Hollywood. It it happens among people of influence. And, um, yeah, it happens up and down the class scale is the main point. I mean, Trump's a really great example of it, isn't it? You know, his, his... The language he uses, we don't know whether he's ever been violent towards women, but the language he uses, you know, just simply the grabber by the pussy thing that he said. Well, if a poor man had said that, if someone, if someone not in the in the public eye, not as wealthy as him, had said that, there would have been I mean, there was outrage, of course. A lot of people were like, This is horrible, but there were also people laughing at it. There were, you know, it got him part of that got him. Alexis, um, you know, he was this powerful man who takes and does what he wants. And it's like, no, that's not okay. Um, it's just a very strange concept that, um, yeah, yeah that, that he, that, that rich men can get away with it. Yeah. I opened my book with that, um, issue actually about Donald Trump being elected just at the time as I was preparing the book. Um, cause it is a really interesting example because he, yeah, he validates and endorses this particular type of masculinity and he got rewarded for doing it as you say so interesting that he openly makes these claims but then kind of says oh it was just banter it's lads being lads and but should be rewarded for that expects that one should be rewarded for that um i think you're right like if it's anybody else they lose their job they're probably like working class men these days would probably lose their job and that's a good thing um but people of influence have are protected uh, and i think about the you know, sports stars and stuff as well as yeah. There's a case over here of an AFL player uh, being involved in domestic abuse. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, this person needs rehabilitating. But um, that's a privilege, actually. That's a weird privilege that comes with being rich, wealthy, in the public eye, and um, being able to get away with stuff. And, you know, no one should get away with that stuff, actually. And when you say, like, oh, you know, they're saying these people need to be rehabilitated, do you think that it's really possible to be rehabilitated from that kind of thing? Or do you... Do you think that, you know, once you're that kind of person, that's the end? Or is that a really complex question? Yeah, uh, it's super complex. But I think there is good evidence of 
good work being done. One of the challenges we have here is that the evidence base lacks sufficient longitudinal study. So what you see in these kind of behavior change interventions for men who have committed acts of domestic violence is they get sent on these um, these courses or whatever and to try and kind of retrain them to be less of an asshole. Um, but then we don't know the impact of that over time. Like in the first instance, often like attitudes can change very quickly. Um, but you need to be able to see what happens over time with attitudes, but also with, with behavior. So there's a kind of misunderstanding, I think, that if we change people's attitudes, we, we automatically change their behavior. And that's, again, why it's misleading to sometimes think about the attitudes of middle-class, well-educated men, because they know what to say anyway. They know how to espouse uh, an egalitarian attitude. But what they do in, in private or public in their actual practices and behaviors is what we should be most interested in. And, um, yeah, and then going back to the you know, people that are trying to have their – trying to be rehabilitated – it's tricky. Like I think it's a kind of cultural and community and social rehabilitation that we have to engage in as well, because they come out of these programs and they go back into the same environment, which might only be the thing you were describing earlier on, like a bunch of lads who are saying, Whoa, tits, whoa, what sluts, whatever. Like maybe it just starts there. And again, it cultivates that same sense of um, disregard for women and wanting to denigrate women. I think it's very, very difficult to stop altogether in part because it's a, those programs are very individual and the problem is cultural and social. Would you, um, I've actually got a quote from one of your books, which is the young working class men in transition uh, from 2018. And you say that working class habitus has under the current conditions permitted working class masculinity to have positively transitioned. A working class habitus has dovetailed with a world influenced positively by feminist gains and more negatively by the challenges of contemporary capitalism, such as precarious work and the need to establish a 1.5 or dual earner household producing a more empathetic practice. I just wondered if you could go into a little bit more detail about that and also um, talk about why this transition might have met some resistance today. Okay, so this is less to do with violence and more to do with um, one of the simple questions that I started with in the book, which is uh, a reaction to other literature that says quite explicitly that working class men cannot do so-called feminine jobs. And the point really that I'm making is that it's kind of absurd to say that because if you go into any shop in any major city or town in England, you'll see young men working in a shop or in a bar. So those jobs that we, uh, as a a waiter or whatever. And the idea in the literature is that men would, um, working class men would kind of automatically reject the dynamic of having to be subservient to a customer. So the, the, the kind of main starting point for me was like trying to understand a, why academics keep saying that men can't do those jobs when they, they literally do them all the time. And and then B, what has caused that change? And then so the argument that, I'm, that I try to make in the book is that um, there's a structural and economic change. So as the UK turned to being a service-led rather than manufacturing and production-led economy, what do working class people do? Well, obviously, they, they if there's no more jobs in the mines and the steelworks and all those kinds of things in um, heavy manufacturing. As those jobs get shipped out to China, and we become a society that's based around shops and cafes and bars and stuff, then, of course, they go into these service-type jobs. Um, But at the same time, there's a normalization process that happens because of the role of second-wave feminism and then um, other waves of feminism since, um, which impacts not only a capacity to work a so-called feminine job, 
but also to engage with friends in a so-called feminine, and what used to be uh, a feminine way. So what we see is an opening up of tactility and emotionality amongst working class men as well. It's kind of denied in the literature, and I don't, I don't really understand why. They're kind of like, ah, it's, you know, it's educated middle-class men who are more likely to hug and kiss their, um, their mates, but that's not what the data actually says. When you talk to people, like, yes, of course, you're going to get some very laddie lads who whatever, I think um, I, I still homophobic and think that it's gay or whatever to hug your mate or touch your mate for too long. But actually there's a big swing the other way in people's behavior. And I think we, uh, what the, my area of study tries to do is say, like, let's not get too carried away of ourselves. We want to understand if that's what we call selective incorporation and whether that's just yeah incorporating new behaviors, but we don't change the relations of power. So men are still, potentially these men are still potentially homophobic or is it a real and meaningful change and it's genuine like a genuine change in forms of expression and the reason that's important sorry for banging on about no, this is taking a long just... way around but the reason that's important is because the, it's, the reason it's important is because men's adherence to old social norms the old version of masculinity is absolutely correlated with high rates of suicide and depression so if we know we can get men to be more emotional and we recognize they are becoming more emotional, we need to see it, recognize it, understand it and leverage it so we can teach other men that it's okay. Because those men who are lonely and you get lonelier as you get older, this is just a fact is what happens with see the data for men. They get lonelier as they get older because they have fewer permanent friends in their lives. They become, you get acquaintances. And so being able to foster genuine, authentic, emotional connection serves a purpose for men's health as much as it does for like gender equality more broadly. I think that's super interesting. And um, I think I, was, I, was, I follow an account called That Darn Chat on uh, on Instagram and something came up the other day about, um, you know, men must use their strength to carry like concrete blocks and bags of rock soil. We can't be raising children because like, that's not what we use our strength for. And this, um, the Darn Chat was like, have you ever tried to carry a baby carrier with a child in it? Like, you know, Firstly, how many times are you carrying concrete blocks down the road, realistically? And as you said, like the industry doesn't require it anymore anyway. But I find it, um, you know, the, the care industry is in desperate need of men because because of their strength, because their ability to lift people over 50 kilos in and out of beds and to be able to to nurse them in hospitals. Yeah, that's so important. Um, so I just find it really funny. Um, They're like, no, sorry, sorry. Yeah, like, yeah, sorry, sorry. I'm, not, I'm just not. Yeah, no, yeah. Caring is too feminine. Like, can't possibly use our masculine strength for that. I'm like, no, no, but you understand, right? Because you've got the muscle mass and you've got the ability to use your strength. Actually, you might be good uh, around children. You might be good around elderly people or in care jobs because actually you've got the ability to lift children up at the age of seven and eight, a lot more easily perhaps than, than a woman, or you've got the ability to, again, um, enable the care of, of everyone, of, of people because of that um, innate strength. So I just find it really funny that that strength is designated, uh, designated for concrete blocks rather than helping people. Um, and that feels like that's a, a societal um, idea that's come about and people have really stuck to, um, and it always makes me smile that, yeah, they could be using that strength for better things, perhaps more valuable things in society. Yeah, it's so funny and it's so important. Like it's emblematic of those, of those, um, the divide that we've been talking about the whole way through about like men should do X and women should do Y. Definitely emblematic of that. But what's super weird is that the idea that men kind of like get validated in their masculinity by doing stuff that's really tough 
well, actually try looking after a four-year-old for more than five minutes, you know, like it's, it's, it's hard work. Like care work is hard. So the idea that it's, it is not hard or, you know, is, is easier and therefore that's why women do it or they're naturally more empathetic or whatever. It's, again, a complete nonsense. There's no truth to that. And, and yeah, it's interesting to me that if men want to kind of like celebrate how hard their work is and create some kind of identity validation through that process, then do the work of care because the work of care is both emotionally and physically taxing for children, for the elderly, for disabled people. Like it's really fucking difficult. So if we're going to go around celebrating how difficult our job is, then the care workers of the world are, should be top of that pinnacle. Absolutely. So I've got a question that we, you can decide whether you want to talk about it and or whether you keep it in, uh, but I'm going to ask and, and you can decide. Um, I wonder, I'm trying to work out how to phrase it. Uh, do you cover in your, either in research or in uh, what you teach about other genders? And do you think that now that sort of it's recognised that there are more genders than just male and female that the impact that that has on these kind of studies and the data um and in particular i suppose the kind of uh the yeah i think that's it yeah what <laughs> how how do other genders impact this kind of study world of your study yeah great that's a really good question and it's um it's probably not so obvious right so i think it's really useful but actually the the presence of uh, the reality of trans people's lives is really effective for the study of gender because it's the starting point or a, a really explicit way of disrupting the gender binary. So the problem with our logic of gender is that there's men and there's women and men do X and women do Y. So the presence of intersex people or trans people really f- throws a spanner in that work straight away. And it's, so it's super useful, like in a, in a very instrumental way that, um, those people's lives are celebrated in my line of work because they really throw a challenge against this idea that anything is real or inherent um, and, and not social. And another thing that this type of work does was just reading a paper last night, actually, about um, a trans man or well, several trans men, but one, one story in particular jumped out to me. And it's this experience of like um, transitioning and becoming a man and a man who passes as a man, but still being kind of slight. Like, so he's a slight build feminine and gay and he talks about um imagining that he would have accessed this world of male privilege and instead what he got was the privilege of men's violence because he was more likely to be physically attacked by cis straight men than he was when it was pre-transition right Mm. so the, the the trans masculine expression was problematic for cis het men to the point where they wanted to chase this guy around and try and beat him up, like chased him seven blocks or whatever. So yeah, the study of trans people, trans men and trans women and non-binary people like opens up the conversation in a really productive way. It's super useful. People seem to be a little bit more accepting about the fact that um, there's gender fluidity, but there's a lot of backlash against this idea that sex doesn't exist. And I just wonder if that's ever come up in your work. Explicitly in my, in my work, but definitely in my field. Um, and it's actually very, uh, I want to say controversial terrain, but it's not controversial when you, it, in the sense that, yes, there's backlash and there's the whole gender critical movement and it's very vociferous in the UK, especially. Um, and in particular, like this whole idea that they're being silenced, which is absurd because uh, gender critical people are more than any others given the platforms, the media platforms to be able to state their views very, very loudly. So it's kind of mm-hmm. odd. But 
the gender critical ideas tend not to dovetail with contemporary feminism and neither with contemporary um, critical studies of masculinities being kind of an offshoot of contemporary feminism. And therefore, like, so on the one hand, I say it's controversial because there's a lot of uh, noise. There's a lot of contestation on social media. There's a lot of like, you know, people follow JK Rowling and think she's saying all these great things because she's um, saying what others perceive to be blatantly transphobic statements and then others are saying oh she's just trying to uh, say that sex is a real thing or whatever so it, it gets into these kind of like tricky <laughs> messy arguments but the the kind of side of the line that i and many of my colleagues sit on and most people i think in our field they sit on the side of being trans inclusive and therefore saying that it's not controversial because we would say that just in the same way that we wouldn't ask these questions around um, whether or not black women are women, then we kind of accept that trans women are women and trans men are men. So the question of sex is interesting. Like the, the theory behind it is, is that it doesn't matter. It's not that there's no sex. It's that the sex is a labeling process as much as anything else that we use. So it's, it's, it's born out of French post-structuralism, which is kind of this approach to thinking that, the, the meaning of everything is unstable and it only, any, anything only has a meaning because we give it meaning. So, and it's not just because like someone wakes up one day and it's like, ah, I'm going to give a meaning to this. Like it's built over time and it, it emerges through discourse um, and, and, and whatever, but the, there is no inherent truth. So it's not whether or not sex is a form of categorization, but what that categorization means politically is important. And, and I guess it's the same for both sides of that debate as well. So gender critical people will sometimes say we need to like, we need to have a, um, an understanding of sex as real because otherwise we can't kind of build our coalition of politics around mm. it. Um, basically in short, like my field is a trans inclusive field that rejects the idea that if that rejects the idea that the presence of trans people diminishes the rights of women. Thank you. I also want to ask a question. You have uh, in your 2014 book, Debating Modern Masculinities, um, it was inspired by Diane Albert's speech in 2013, in which she suggested that contemporary young British men are facing a crisis of masculinity. What does that mean? So, yeah, the crisis of masculinity, again, is a, is a narrative that pops up over time. And it's simply that it's, you know, it's not just Diane Abbott that said this. It just, it just caught my attention that she'd said it and it, it got a lot of public attention at the time. But it's this reproduction of this idea that Times have changed and it's difficult for boys and men today. Um, and then that's framed as a kind of novel finding that things are so bad right now that we have to have particular sets of policies and ideas because this generation of boys have never had it so hard because the meaning of being a man has shifted so, so radically they don't know what's going on. And my rejection of that idea has a couple of strands, one being that, as I mentioned a few times already, it happens cyclically. It's just a completely common idea that men are too soft or men don't have the means to make themselves masculine. Um, and then, well, maybe three strands. Then a second strand is that similar to what I was saying earlier about that boys, boys and men now work in feminine lines of work. Like the very presence of that points to the fact that most people are not experiencing this notion of crisis. And then thirdly, uh, the crisis of masculinity is, it's kind of a nonsense and or an overarching truth because the, I suppose the point is that masculinity itself is always in crisis and that's the point like it's it's never 
you can never achieve it, right? That's the whole reason that we get these kind of, um, I guess one of the reasons we get violence as well between men, that people are demonstrating their masculinity in different ways, often problematic ways, because it's like crisis is constitutive of masculinity. It's just, it's just constant crisis the whole time. It's that you can't pin it down and yet people are always trying to achieve it. So it's a kind of um, a nonsensical idea. And whether it's a public rhetoric or an academic discourse or, um, you know, a, a, yeah, a driver of policy or whatever, um, I think it's, it's problematic and, and nonsense because it just isn't true. Like the idea that it, it conjures up the idea that we should look back to the past when things were better. And probably what people mean when they're saying that is that the world is becoming more equal in ways that don't benefit men. And that's, there's a really, really important point that I think often goes missing. And sometimes masculinity scholars are not brave enough to say. Some of them are, but well, not, not brave, but they kind of don't want to address it. But there's a really important point that equality is, is sometimes a little bit of a zero-sum game, a little bit. So as, as women gain rights and gain access to the labor market um, and so on, that is often at the cost of men who used to have the privilege. So there is an erosion of privilege to make way for equality, but that's a good thing. But often what people say is like, oh, it doesn't make any difference. Like as women become more and more equal, nothing will change for men. But what it does, of course, it, it demands more from men. So those men that used to get jobs um, so easily, politicians, when it used to be like 80% men or whatever, <laughs> those politicians, those men are not going to get those jobs so easily mm -hmm. anymore. So of course there's a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a negative effect for some men. And I think that's really important to understand. And yet at the same time, as that's happening, then the crisis of masculinity narrative rises. Like if only it could be like it used to be. <laughs> like boys and men today, they don't have jobs. They don't have these opportunities to get um, like access to privileged positions in the way that they used to without having to work hard. Yeah. Like that's the real crisis. It's the crisis of privilege, not the crisis of masculinity. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Um, so I know uh, we're coming towards the end of Ellie's time. So I think what I I think what I'd like to ask right at the end is like if there was something. So we tend to wrap up with like a a piece of homework, grab a glass of wine, and and I think what I'd like to ask you is like if there were if there were a couple of things that you could say to people about like bringing up their kids or like things that men can do or what what would you say is is gonna head us towards fixing the crisis of privilege or and and these kind of inherent things that kind of perpetuate uh misogyny and and the like <laughs> like yeah okay <laughs> that's a massive question that's the uh answering that question properly would be like make me the most successful person ever in my we could wait you could write a thesis on it for us and we'll yeah, read yeah, it out yeah. at another okay. point <laughs> uh, it's a great question i think it comes back in a way, to a point that Ellie was making at the beginning about um, like seeing, observing the experience of others, so men and boys experiencing, seeing and experiencing what happens for, for women and girls. So I think one of the crucial things, and it's kind of already happening, so parents are kind of behind the curve on this in a way, um, but one of the crucial things is to reject the distinction, the masculine, feminine, male, female kind of distinction to the point of... Um, domains of practice so some people think that their boys um will only have girl mates uh, so will only have boy mates and that their girls should only have girl mates and so on so i think what's a really important starting point is getting away from those ideas that boys 
will only ha- the, the boys will be boys and therefore they won't want to hang out with girls it's a complete nonsense and i think our, our starting point then is yeah making sure that our boys are comfortable with the understanding that girls and women are much more than and more than is such an important word like boy, girls are girls and women are much more than sexual and romantic others which is how they're constituted when they're uh, when we're children when we grow up we start to hear about boys and uh, as a boy we start to hear about girls as being a romantic right. other quite quickly yes. but actually <laughs> yeah it's crazy it's, i saw a guy literally a dad uh, getting his daughter to paint a t-shirt saying won't get married until she's 41 like wouldn't date until she's 41 and this kid was like a toddler and uh, yeah, yeah so young so so young it's bizarre and, and really tragic, actually, that we think in those ways. And, and yeah, and of, of often what seem, seemingly harmless ways. So people will say, you know, they'll talk to about my four-year-old. Oh, has he got a girlfriend yet? Like, he's four years old. Of course he hasn't got a girlfriend. Doesn't have a romantic other, whatever that romantic other might be. But the, the point is that romantic others are not, like, you know, sometimes we hear this when we talk about boys and girls or men and women who are mates and we say, ah, oh, it's, it's not more than that. I think we need to flip that around because, like, being friend is more than what we start with. We start with the idea that we're sexually romantic others and, and that's our only kind of form of connection. Um, yeah, so I think like cultivating a sense of possibility of having different sex and different gender friends is really like the most basic but really simple thing that people can do. It's a really interesting thing. I was having just this conversation last night um with a friend who yeah and and he was like oh you know I've had I've had a conversation with somebody about how they don't think you can be platonic friends with with the opposite sex and of course like I personally think it's utter nonsense yeah yeah does this make the concept of single sex schools really damaging absolutely absolutely yeah great question I can I could write a thesis on that as well I, I it's very difficult um, because I think same sex spaces for women, like single gender schools for girls and women have definite benefits. Like, so grades, safety from being sexually harassed and sexually assaulted, like they're protective factors. And yet for boys not to be interacting with women during those crucial years, what the hell is going on for them? The othering is amplified, right? They can only almost only ever think of the think of well not not almost always but often will think of women more so as sexual others in that in that kind of environment um but yeah like the the thing about platonic behavior is is interesting like i again it might be to do with having such an influential mom and seeing the kinds of damage that um my mom kind of experienced but i've always had girlmates and not hooked up with them <laughs> you know like it's it's possible like and, and women know that like i think Probably if you were going to say, as two straight people, um, is there a basis that you might hook up? Maybe. Like, is there's a higher chance than um, you hooking up? Probably, it's like if you're heterosexual, there's a higher chance of you hooking up with a different gendered heterosexual person than hooking up with a same-sex person, right? But that's kind of so what? Like, it's not, it doesn't mean that you're going to hook up or that there's... Um, yeah, anything less, because I, I think it's not, it's not more than anything less than genuine friendship. And I think genuine friendships can be cultivated, are cultivated. Um, I'll give you a great example. So we've got a, a cousin staying here from Germany at the moment, and he's only 15. And he said to me on this first day of arriving, we're talking about this very thing, of like, you know, partners and stuff. And he said, um, for my generation, and he said it in broken English, but it was so sweet. For my generation, it's kind of uh, an unwritten secret 
that it's cringe to date a girl in your own class because we're all friends. And I just thought it was so sweet. He's 15 years old. And his point was like, of course we wouldn't hook up with people from school because we're mates. Like we're first and foremost mates and we, we go elsewhere for our kind of sexual and romantic inclinations. And so it's possible, you know? Yeah. What nice. That's quite, that's quite, it's quite a refreshing thing, isn't it? That they, that, yeah, that, that he thinks that and says that. Um, Okay, I think I like the idea that maybe we've given you some ideas for uh, your next thesis. I think that's a, uh, maybe we'll yeah, get a little... Watch this space. My next book is going to be about these issues. <laughs> maybe we'll get a little shout out in it, uh, maybe in the acknowledgements or something. Um, but I think the main thing I want to do is say thank you. It's been super, super interesting. I think we probably could have talked to you all day um and uh yeah it's it's really really good and i have no doubt that m when she listens to this so our our fourth member of the of the podcast will be like no why wasn't i there and she will have had a million questions so you never know we might be getting you back so that she can quiz you and throw questions at you and uh yeah thank you for being so open thank you for touching on some really um difficult things for you and uh i think i think we're grabbing a glass of wine and uh getting some opposite sex friends i think that's what we're doing <laughs> i'd love to come back on anytime because i feel like it's it's all been about me so i'd love to come back on at some stage and hear more about your experiences as well and like yeah have more of a dialogue oh like, well, that would be amazing I would be absolutely game yeah, for that. that um, I just want to echo Rhiannon and saying thank you so much for coming on today and just being so open with your ideas and your experiences and sharing those with us today. It's been so important, I think, to get the male perspective on this and to see how patriarchy and sexism and misogyny harm men as much as it does women. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. The Unfair Sex is not sponsored. So if you liked our show, please show your support by liking, subscribing and sharing on all your favourite social media platforms. We're on Twitter at The Unfair Sex. We're on Instagram at The Unfair Sex Podcast. And you can email us, theunfairsex at gmail.com. We are also now on Facebook. Just search The Unfair Sex. <laughs>